So it's very, very, very tiny. And because of these incredibly complex, this what we call a hierarchical structure. So a structure that has um, structures of different sizes working together, like the gecko's foot. This hierarchical structure allows it to make incredibly intimate contact with almost any surface you can think of. So they can climb up painted walls, bricks, uh, glass, no problem, because it can, the tiny split ends at the ends of the hairs on a gecko's toes tap into this van der Waals interaction. They are astonishing. <laughs> this is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today I'm speaking with Lori Winkless, author of the recent book, Sticky. Lori is a material scientist turned science writer, and she is obsessed with surfaces. That's what Sticky is about. In it, Lori dives into what happens when one surface meets another to make things stick, slip, grip, or drag. Her book delves into why these interactions at surfaces are so essential to our everyday lives. And yet, it can be tricky figuring out what's actually happening at those interfaces. Lori looks at some cool examples ones at the tips of our fingers, like how they can make a nightmarish bond with superglue, and more extreme ones, like hot tires on Formula One racing cars. She definitely weaves a story of what's going on at the tiniest scales, the molecules and atoms in materials, with what we can see and touch. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, Lori. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about your book. Um, so why did you write Sticky? What is it about surfaces that fascinates you? I guess I have a kind of a professional interest in surfaces. Um, when I worked in the lab, I worked in the National Physical Laboratory, which is kind of on the west of London in the UK. I worked there as a material scientist for seven years. And my my focus really was around surface science, not entirely, um, but I did do a lot of projects that were looking specifically at the surfaces of different types of materials. And that might be things like water repellent surfaces, for example, or could we pattern surfaces in a way that we could reduce or increase the amount of friction that they generated? So I did have a kind of a professional background in it, but the concept for this book didn't really come about in any kind of uh, strategic way. It was just these little drips of ideas that that kept just dripping into my mind over the course of probably a year, to be honest. Um, I was writing my first book, Science in the City, and in that, I, I very briefly write about um, the difficulties that trains have in in moving on train tracks that have leaves on them. So, you know, this beware of leaves on the line, this, this idea that leaves could slow down an entire railway system. And when I was living in London, that was such a common occurrence. You know, in the autumn, you would hear this, you'd hear this announcement in train stations all the time. Mm. And I started kind of looking into it and seeing, you know, could, is it really, is it really that bad? Does it really cause such problems? And so in Science in the City, I kind of wrote about that a little bit and about the fact that the leaves really do massively reduce the friction that exists between the steel wheels of the train and the steel tracks that they run on. And I thought, it's not kind of interesting that friction is one of these forces that we absolutely take for granted. And it's only really when it's absent that we we notice it. You know, that absence of friction is what's stopping the trains from running. And that was just kind of parked in my mind. Um, and then looking back at my some of my notes for a different project entirely, uh, looking back at my um 
hydrophobic, so water repellent surfaces, uh, lab notes made me think, oh, well, I mean, that's also a surface effect. It's not friction, but the way that water interacts with surfaces is also potentially an interesting surface effect. So it was kind of lots of little things that that really kind of started me thinking, maybe I could write a book about surfaces with a kind of a an underlying message around friction. And I didn't see anything else that had been in the literature around that. I hadn't, I read a, a ton of popular science books. I love them. And I hadn't seen one that had focused on topics like that. So I just thought, well, I should give it a go. Yeah. Well, for surfaces do seem to be an important part of our everyday lives. And I guess I'm curious now, what do physicists or material scientists see when they look at a surface? How are they looking at that surface and thinking about it differently than maybe the average person does? I think most physicists or material scientists would be thinking about what's happening on a surface or between surfaces. So they see the surface as a kind of an interface, not necessarily something in and of itself, but what happens when things ha- what what happens when things kind of occur on those surfaces or interact with those surfaces. So you might be looking at things like the roughness. So that's something that we can measure with various tools. Um, you might also be looking at uh, if there's if there's any existing kind of contamination on the surface, that will will have an impact on how other things interact with it. If something is dirty, we know this. If something is dirty and then we try to bond it together with with a piece of glue, it's usually not going to stick. We kind of know instinctively that we have to clean surfaces in order to get them to bond correctly. So you know the chemical makeup of a surface will be important if we're looking at things like adhesion. Um, Like I said, the physical structure, so the roughness or any the presence of any bumps or crevices, that will have an impact on how surfaces bond. Um, They're kind of the main things from from my viewpoint, because what happens on surfaces defines how those surfaces interact with the world. And I think perhaps people might not expect a book called Sticky to include things like aerodynamics. But in truth, you know, air is a fluid and how a fluid moves across a surface defines a huge amount about the object it is. Whatever that object is that's moving through the air, really what defines that is is what's happening on the surface. So I really wanted to kind of make people realise that so much interesting science and so many interesting phenomena happen on and between surfaces. Sure, yeah. And I I guess one of the things that I enjoyed from early in your book is that um, you shared that the idea of modifying surfaces is pretty ancient. Um, Can you say more about that, about how um, ancient Egyptians may have used sleds? Yes, this was something that got me quite early on, really, in the process. Um, So there is a proper, inverted commas, proper science (laughs) around measuring friction, and that's called tribology. But I really argue that we humans have been tribologists for for much longer than we had the name for it. And the example that I gave in the book is from a tomb, a tomb of of an Egyptian governor. So he wasn't a pharaoh, but he was a very influential governor called Jehutihotep. And his tomb is very famous because it has these incredible murals on the wall. So even though the the tomb has been damaged for various reasons over the millennia, these murals are are usually very bright and easy to see. And in one of those murals, there's an image which shows a huge statue, judging by the scale of the many humans that surround it, which is believed to be Jehutihotep himself. And in this image, 
this this huge statue is sitting on a sled probably made from wood and it's been dragged along the surface by a series of humans and they when archaeologists look at images like this they're always looking at really the details of these images because they tell you some secrets and one of the secrets is at the front of the sled so directly at the bottom of the statue so at the foot of the statue there stands a person who who's pouring some sort of liquid in front of the sled now you could argue and and many can and have argued that this might be some sort of um maybe a ceremonial act, perhaps it's some sort of oil or some sort of cleansing liquid that's been poured in the path of the sled as it's moved along the sand. But some engineers started to wonder if it might actually have been an early lubricant, maybe that they were trying to to change the surface of the sand to make it easier to slide this enormous statue on. And so a few years ago, a group of engineers and scientists kind of reproduced this. So they took this idea and they reproduced it in miniature using a series of of weights and um, a small wooden sled with a rounded front, which is similar to what's shown in the image. And they dragged it along samples of different types of sand and while doing so measured the friction involved. So they're really interested in the coefficient of friction. So this is a number that we can really measure quite accurately in measure in in experiments. And as they did these measurements, they added increasing quantities of water because they reckoned water was probably the most likely liquid that they would use in these situations. And what they found was that if you get an optimum amount of water that you can add to sand that reduces the friction between a sliding object on that sand, and the sand itself. So when the sand is dry, no matter what type of sand you have, the friction is always high between the sled and the sand. But as you add tiny amounts of water, up to about 5% on this occasion, you start to see friction drop off. And when you have 5% water, friction is at its lowest. The friction between the sled and the sand actually drops by 40% when you add 5% of water. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's a huge drop. So there really is an amount of water that you can add that that alters the friction in a way that makes it easier to slide this object on the surface. And what was really interesting is in a totally different study, archaeologists had looked at the maximum pulling strength of ropes that were around at the same time. So kind of unrelated to this. And they reckon that certain stone monuments from the time could only have been dragged along using ropes if this coefficient of friction, so the amount of friction that exists between that object and the sand, was around 0.33. And in this miniaturized sliding study that these engineers did, they measured a coefficient of friction of 0.3. So it's bang on. So in terms of the ropes and the sliding, it does seem to suggest that the Egyptians understood and could manipulate surfaces. They understood lubrication. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, the namesake of the book is sticky. So why don't we talk about some superstar sticky materials? There were um, some examples in your book were sticky notes and super glue. Can you talk about how people have worked to develop materials that are that are really good at being grippy? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, super glue is a good one, I think, because it's one of these products that we all have in our house and we will always, well, people tend to always go, oh, I need to stick some things together. I'll just grab the super glue. But what was interesting when I was speaking to people working in the adhesives industry is that for them, there is no one kind of perfect adhesive. When you're trying to think about how two things join together, they adhesive manufacturers are obsessed with the surfaces that the adhesive was going to be applied to. So you might not want to use the same adhesive if you're trying to, say, glue, I don't know, rubber onto a piece of wood. You'll use a different compound for that than if you were trying to bond two pieces of metal together, for example. Um, so I find that quite interesting, that idea that adhesion is this is a property of the system it's not just this one product that can do everything <laughs> although super glue has kind of become that for for lots of us not working in the adhesives industry <laughs> um but i do really like super glue because i think people tend to think of it as a trademark as well they think of it as this one product that is called super glue that's not true at all um, there's no trademark on the term super glue so anyone can call a super glue a uh, super glue um, but usually it's something that has a cyanoacrylate based adhesive so it has a particular type of chemistry in the adhesive and that's usually what makes it a super glue now it was invented or discovered i suppose by accident um the person who discovered it was actually looking for a different type of product um and i think it was for the military in fact but he found this exceptionally sticky formulation that seemed to just wreck everything that it came into contact with and we know this right you know if you get super glue onto your fingers <laughs> you know what a nightmare that can be mm -hmm. um but so coover the person who invented it he kind of set it aside and, and just came back to it later and the reason that cyanoacrylate adhesives are so sticky is because they actually react with water. So they react with water in the air. I think a lot of people think that it's oxygen in the air. So it stays liquid in the tube because the tube is closed and there's no oxygen. And that is true, but it is actually the water that it interacts with. It's the water that causes those bonds to, to form. So now thinking about how moist our fingers are, we humans are, are constantly a little bit damp. We are constantly producing water vapour. It now makes a bit more sense as to why superglue is so incredibly sticky on your fingers, because as soon as that glue hits the damp fingers, the molecules in the glue start to line up and the glue hardens almost instantly. It's also the same reason why you should never, ever have super glue anywhere near your mouth, for example, another exceptionally wet part of your body. Um, so the thing about super glue is that, yeah, it's kind of it does work. It does stick lots of things together, but it usually does so irreversibly in the sense that it can be difficult to remove it. It can be painful if you get it on your skin and try to take it off. So it's not in the adhesives industry. It's not seen as a as a catch all. It's not seen as this perfect glue. It's just seen as quite a useful glue to be applied in lots of different uh, conditions. So adhesives manufacturers are always thinking about what is the application that you want to use this product for? And that is always comes back to questions of what surfaces are you going to put this stuff on and how is this bond going to exist in reality? Right. So can you maybe say a little bit more generally about what determines whether something sticks or not, sort of the properties of the systems and that, that 
interface between the two things? Yeah, I think one thing that is perhaps not very well known is that a lot of adhesives products that we use, like sticky tape, for example, they don't really form a chemical bond between surfaces. They stick because the glue or the adhesive actually manages to flow into tiny, tiny bumps and crevices and cracks that exist on the surfaces of basically everything. Every surface around us, even things like glass, if you look at it on a small enough scale, you'll find that it's incredibly rough. And so adhesives manufacturers tend to actually use that as a way to form, to make things stick. So the glue actually flows into those gaps. It doesn't chemically bond. There's no chemical bond that is formed. So these types of adhesives are called pressure sensitive adhesives. And they're most of the types of adhesives that we use in the world around us. But there are things to consider, like how clean the surface is. So if you're someone like me and you like doing DIY and you like upcycling furniture, (laughs) you know that one of the first pieces of advice that you get is to sand your surface very carefully. You absolutely should do that if what your goal is to do is is to paint it. Because what you're doing, you are kind of smoothing out the surface. But more importantly, in the in the case of paint, which we also need to stick onto surfaces, you're actually cleaning the surface. So you're removing lots and lots of dirt and anything else that might interrupt the bond that forms when a paint film uh, forms on a surface. And in it, because in a paint, it's actually the paint sticks to itself and it just creates a film that sits on the surface. So it's trying to just get as clean a surface as it possibly can. And that way it can kind of cling on to the surface as well as possible. With When you're trying to stick two things together, so when you're using an adhesive, you actually don't usually want to sand the surface, believe it or not, because you actually need some of that roughness in order to get let the adhesive flow and form a really good contact with the surface. So then when you bring two objects together, there's plenty of glue in all the bumps and crevices and th- that, those glues, those two layers of glue will bond together and hold the object together. So it's qu- it's not as instinctive as you might think. It's quite counterintuitive to me as someone as a, as someone who's a DIYer who enjoys yeah. doing all of this stuff. I again kind of hadn't really thought about it in that way. So sometimes the roughness works for you and sometimes it works against you. Sure, yeah. Um, Maybe we can switch now to the natural world. It sounds from your book like you got really into geckos, and geckos have some (laughs) famously grippy feet. So I guess, you know, first off, how did you get into geckos? Well, I should say that I am very far from a biologist. (laughs) So (laughs) I had a a deep and abiding ignorance, if I'm honest, about um, animal biology specifically. And my original plan for this chapter was that it was going to look at lots of different types of sticky and or slippery animals. So, you know, I was Mm. going to talk about the gecko. I was going to talk about sharks and how, you know, they've evolved to move through the water quickly. Um, Ants and spiders that actually produce tiny little blobs of of an adhesive on their toes. I was going to talk about all of these things. And then the gecko, oh my goodness, it just like hooked me in. (laughs) Just, (laughs) I just couldn't believe how 
number one, how long we've been studying and being fascinated by the gecko for. Number two, how many ideas had been considered and then kind of cast aside when trying to understand how these amazing lizards crawl and climb up almost any surface you can imagine. And then really, number three, how complicated and how incredibly detailed their feet and their adhesive system, I guess we could think of it, how complicated that is and how far away we are from reproducing it. (laughs) You know, we are, I spoke to lots of engineers who have taken I guess, inspiration from the gecko and taking some of the essential elements of what it is that makes a gecko feet so sticky. And they have used that to make robots that can climb and also to make a type of uh, a tape that you can apply to existing robot arms, say in factories, you know, manufacturing plants that are moving around awkwardly shaped objects. And that that gecko tape can improve the grip of those robot arms. So, you know, that's like, great, great. The gecko's done it. They've been inspired fully. But actually, every one of the engineers I spoke to will tell you that they are so simplistic. The gecko tape is so simplistic compared to the the great complexity of a real gecko's foot. We are very, very far away from ever being able to reproduce something that has evolved over many millennia. And I, I just found that idea really fascinating that, you know, as usual, Mother Nature has managed to to create something that we could only dream of. Do you mind telling us about some of the incorrect things that scientists thought would explain geckos' grips? Sure, yeah. So one of my favourites is the uh, the climber's boot <laughs> hypothesis. So I really like this because I'm not a climber. Um, so it's not something that I know anything about. Um, but so the idea was that we kind of, we scientists, uh, started to realise that if you look at a gecko's foot in enough detail the toes are covered in these very, very small hairs. So there was a pretty reasonable assumption that maybe this could actually act as a kind of a, a hook, you know, like on a climber's boot, you can get these crampons, these these boots that have all these hooks that actually dig into a rough surface and allow you to climb up the surface. So they thought maybe these hairs act as a kind of a crampon, mm-hmm. sort of micro hooks. But We also know that geckos can climb on incredibly smooth surfaces and they don't cause any damage to those smooth surfaces. So the micro hooks idea was kind of out (laughs) Um, because it's like it's not digging into the surface. There's something else going on. Even earlier than that, there was what I think is actually still a common misconception um, that somehow the gecko's foot acts as a sort of a suction cup. You know, it forms a little tiny vacuum of air. It puts its foot on a surface, forms this little vacuum of air, just like a suction cup, and then it makes it hard to pull off. But actually, the gecko can still climb and cling onto surfaces, even when there's very, very low air. Um, And that was not a that was a really horrible experiment that was done many, many years ago, um, where they literally put geckos into a vacuum chamber until there was no air left, which is awful. Um, but in that discovered that it's not to do with air pressure. It's not to do with the suction effect. And it was really only when we had microscopes that could look at things in enough detail that people started to kind of unpack the mystery of what it is that makes a gecko climb. And the hairs are at the heart of it. So 
When a gecko puts its feet onto a wall, and I'm staring up at my wall directly in front of me as if a gecko is going to magically appear, um, but when they put their feet onto a vertical surface, they will tug their feet down. And that was an important observation because what it made scientists realize is that when they do that, these tiny hairs that are on a gecko's feet actually splay outwards. So instead of just touching the surface as if they were hooks, which is what they look like when their feet are relaxed, that action of tugging their feet down causes those hairs to splay forwards and outwards. So massively increasing the contact area Mm. between the foot and the wall. But even more interesting than that is if you zoom in on those hairs, you'll see that each one of those hairs has a terrible, terrible case of split ends. So each one of those hairs split into even smaller hairs. And now that we can zoom in on one of those tiny, 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 tiny hairs, those split ends, we realise that some of those are just a few atoms in width. So when I say tiny, I really do mean tiny. Wow, that's so small. It's so small. And it means that a gecko can actually get into such intimate contact with the wall that it can tap into van der Waals interaction. And and van der Waals interactions are only possible when you can get two surfaces within one nanometer of one another. Sorry, what are (laughs) van der Waals interactions? So they are, it's basically what happens is when you have an electron imbalance in in an atom. So you will always have, you have an atom, you've got the nucleus at the centre of it, you've got a series of electron orbitals around it. At any given time, some of the electrons will, there will be more of the electrons on one side of the atom than the other, effectively. It's kind of a temporary imbalance of the charges within the atom. And that temporary imbalance kind of acts to attract another atom that has a similar but opposite temporary imbalance. So it's not quite like magnetism, um, but people have often compared the two. Um, So that temporary imbalance of electrons in an atom can be enough when you scale it up to many, many billions of atoms, can be enough to act as an attractive force between two objects. But in order to tap into it, you can imagine how close those atoms need to be, right? When we talk about one nanometer, that is um, that's unfathomably small, I think, for the human mind. Right, yeah. Billions of times. So wait, one billionth of, of a meter? Well, exactly. And one, one of the examples I always say is, you know, a peppercorn, like you might have in your pepper grinder. So a single peppercorn measures about five million nanometers in diameter. Hmm. So that's very, very, very tiny. And because of these incredibly complex, this what we call a hierarchical structure. So a structure that has um, structures of different sizes working together, like the gecko's foot. This hierarchical structure allows it to make incredibly intimate contact with almost any surface you can think of. So they can climb up painted walls, bricks, uh, glass, no problem, because it can the tiny split ends at the ends of the hairs on a gecko's toes tap into this van der Waals interaction. They are astonishing. <laughs> that is very cool. So how are people copying this strategy? 
in a much larger sense, I suppose. So one of the things that they do is instead of having these tiny hairs, the gecko tape that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. this is actually made with a a silicone. So just like a very kind of and I've seen it and felt it. It just feels like a normal rubbery material that you might have on a on a kitchen utensil, you know, just a kind of a rubbery material. But it's actually been heavily patterned and it's patterned into wedges. So these are wedges that kind of try to copy the hairs in that when you put this tape up against a wall and you tug it down like a gecko's toes, those wedges splay forward and they can make some fairly intimate contact with the wall. They can tap into a small part of van der Waals interaction. Mm. Nowhere near as even compared to a single gecko's toe, <laughs> they probably can't create even as good a, a bond in inverted commas uh, as that. Um, but they can tap into enough of the van der Waals interaction that they can grip. And also the rubber allows it to be very flexible. And it, again, it can kind of flex and bend and and slightly flow into rough surfaces. So when I went to visit some of the engineers at Stanford, I was handed an American football and a little strip of this gecko tape. And, and it was it was kind of had a string attached halfway along the piece of tape. Now, the piece of tape was something like a sticking plaster in size, very, very small and a full size American football. So I lowered down the tape onto the ball just so it touched the ball and then was told to pull the string in order to lift up the ball. And I was genuinely amazed <laughs> when I picked the ball up from the table because this piece of tape looked so small. And when I got to look at it in more detail later, what I could see is that it was actually uh, two pieces of tape, the wedges in which had been orientated in different directions. So when I pulled on the piece of tape on the rounded surface of the ball, on one side, the wedges pulled in one direction and on the other side, they pulled in the opposite direction. So they kind of they clung together and allowed me to lift the ball. So it is just this this wedge shape and the material choice that allows them to tap into a small fraction of the type of forces that a gecko also taps into. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to turn to the swimsuits that give athletes an edge. There's more animal inspiration sure. there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about some of the cool suits that you read up on. Yeah. So this was something I I knew that I wanted to write about in this chapter. I wanted to write about hydrodynamics and, and how things move through the water. And I should confess, I'm not a swimmer. So it isn't something that I have an instinctive understanding of necessarily. But I remembered several Olympics ago that there was a huge amount of controversy around these full body suits. They kind of looked much more like a, a wetsuit, really, than the traditional tiny, tiny swim, swim shorts um, that male Olympic swimmers wear and the traditional kind of swimsuits that the female Olympic uh, swimmers use. And I remember there being all the stuff about, oh, it's inspired by sharks and it just works exactly like shark skin. And I thought, if I can delve into the real science of that, this could be an interesting story to tell, even though these suits are no longer allowed to be used. Oh, <laughs> so really? maybe that's the end of the story. Yeah. So the, a lot of those suits ended up being banned from use because they were seen to give an unfair advantage. So they worked, right? <laughs> the problem is that they might not have worked for the reasons that the marketing uh, materials told us. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I really wanted to delve into that. And I was lucky enough to actually interview the designer of the original Speedo Fast Skin suit, which was really the first one of these suits on the market, um, Fiona Fairhurst. And she was very generous and in her in speaking to me. I was very grateful to speak to her about it. Um, and she had told me that she had visited the Natural History Museum in London and she got to to speak to a shark expert at the museum and he told her all about these things called dermal denticles. Now, these are chevron shaped structures. They're not really scales. Um, they're made out of the same material as, as teeth. Um, they cover a shark's skin. Now, there are different sizes and different shapes and different parts of the body, and, and they don't exist on all sharks, but they are pretty common. And, and this shark expert told Fiona Fairhurst that this is what makes sharks so fast in the water. So she kind of went away thinking about this and thinking, you know, could we apply this to humans? Could we make tiny features like this that would allow us to slip through the water with with less resistance? So that's kind of what started her off on this idea of of a kind of a low friction swimsuit. And that's what kickstarted the project. And all of the marketing materials all had images of swimmers, human swimmers and then and sharks. And it was all very shark heavy. But when I interviewed Fiona, she said, you know, we didn't, we weren't trying. We never said that it was exactly the same as sharks. That was just what ended up happening in the marketing. We know that it wasn't exactly the same as a shark skin. It was just the, it was just the starting off point mm. for us. So um, that was interesting because it didn't reflect what I'd seen in, in the media. Um, so these suits, they tend to be full body suits because of, well, for several reasons, but the main reasons that they actually work and they really genuinely do reduce drag as a swimmer moves through the water is not so much about the surface itself, but more to do with what it's doing to the whole body. So the full body suit sucks a swimmer in. It really compresses their body. It supports their core. They positioned all the seams on the suits in very specific positions so that it would support different muscle groups. So by kind of compressing a swimmer's body and holding their muscles, you allow those swimmers to kind of more focus their muscles on moving forward. So you're getting it's kind of like that idea of being in a harness, you know, you're mm -hmm. supported so that you're not wasting energy, just keeping yourself in the right position. Your, your swimsuit's doing that for you. So that's definitely one contri contributing factor to, to how it reduced drag. The material probably had something to do with it, although I did find some really interesting research in which a, a scientist put pieces of the fast skin suit onto um paddles and sweat he's actually a shark shark biologist mm -hmm. and moved them through the water and he found that the drag was actually lowest when the fabric was inside out oh. <laughs> than when it was the right way out um so you yeah, know maybe because the the features there were features on the fabric it did have kind of structure on it but again nowhere nothing at all like the features that exist on a shark so maybe the surface didn't have much to do with it um later versions of the swimsuit so the ones that eventually became banned, they really did act like um, a wetsuit in that they trapped a layer of air in between the skin and the mm -hmm. suit. And that allowed the swimmer to sit higher in the water 
and therefore experience less resistance in that way. <laughs> so they really did work. You know, they really did reduce drag, but they just didn't do it because the surface looked exactly like a shark skin. But eventually, yes, they were banned because they were seen as a as a tool, effectively. Um, yeah, so I really, I loved, I really enjoyed the process of learning about that. As a non-swimmer, I found it really interesting. So I hope that swimmers reading it will also find it interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will. It's kind of fascinating to hear about how <laughs> this was the, the inspiration came from sharks, but it didn't work the way sharks <laughs> Yeah, it does. didn't. It didn't. And shark skin is astonishing. It's astonishingly detailed. And, and it really genuinely, do, these, these dermal denticles that cover a shark skin actually seem to not only reduce drag, but they seem to, that the way that water flows around them actually seems to accelerate the shark through the water. So they are incredible. But again, this suit, these suits did not reproduce that in any way. Are there any lessons from the world of underwater animals or swimming that um, could help us make our means of transportation uh, more efficient? You mentioned shipping. Um, yeah. Shipping. yeah. Yeah. I was something that I found really interesting. Well, one topic in particular I found interesting around boats is, again, I hadn't really thought about how much of the world is reliant on trade by sea. <laughs> Maybe that's ignorance of me, but somewhere around 90% of global trade still happens by sea. So we are incredibly reliant on massive, massive boats plowing their way through the water, crisscrossing across the globe in order to, to live modern, you know, the lives that we live. Um, and pushing through the water takes a lot of energy. So, and these boats are all powered by fossil fuels, right? They all use a fossil fuel in order to do this. So there are lots of attempts to find ways to make boats more slippery, I suppose, <laughs> to reduce the drag that they experience as they move through the water. And there was one really interesting project that I, I thought was cool. And it's based on a, on a particular type of plant. It's actually a fern called a salvinia fern. Now, this is usually seen as a weed, an invasive weed, and that's for good reasons, because this this fern grows in these enormous mats, these huge mats that sit on the tops of waterways. So they can suffocate waterways. You know, they can really, really damage waterways. So people try and get rid of them, completely rightly so. Um, but the, the plant itself is, is very interesting. When you look at a Salvinia fern, what you see is that these leaves are covered in, again, tiny hairs. We keep coming back to tiny hairs yes. in the natural world for some reason. <laughs> um, but these Salvinia leaves are covered in these, in these tiny hairs. And you can see them with the naked eye. You don't need to look at them under a microscope. Um, but there was a group of scientists a few years ago who thought, I wonder if we could reproduce the structure of a Salvinia fern. Because the fern is incredibly good at repelling water. Mm. You can put samples of a salvinia fern underwater for several years and then take it out of the water and it's completely dry, right? This is an astonishing fern. It's, it has an absolute mastery of repelling water from its surfaces. So these scientists tried to, to copy it and, and they managed to make a surface that has these hairs on it. And they even copied one of the interesting things about these salvinia hairs, which is that they're not just a straight hair. They actually look quite like a very tiny baking whisk. <laughs> so oh. it's 
Yeah, it's a long strand, and then at the top of the strand, it splits into four, and then at the top, and then they join again at the top. So you kind of have this little cage-like feature on the top, just like a whisk. Um, they managed to reproduce all that, and they they printed it onto a surface, put it in the water, and were like, "Yep, it's repelling water, great." After a little while, it lost its water repellency. So they thought we're missing something. And when they looked at the Salvinia leaf in more detail, what they realized is that the whole leaf surface and the whole whisk surface, these hairs, are covered in a waxy water repellent water repellent material, just a very waxy material like many, many plants. But at the very tip of the whisk, there was one area in which there was none of this wax. So this was the bit they'd missed. And what they realized is that that tip of the whisk it actually attracts water, but the entire rest of the stru- of the structure repels water. So what that means is that it can actually trap a layer of air on the surface of the leaf. So everything around the hairs, the surface underneath, all the hairs, everything, that's all just air. And that little gap where it, that is attracting the water clings onto the water on the outside so it creates this it traps this layer of air with water on the outside and it can do that you know infinitely it doesn't lose that ability mm-hmm. they thought they had originally thought it was a bit more like the lotus leaf mm-hmm. which is also famously kind of water repellent but it is just water repellent it's just covered in wax it's covered in these structures it just repels water Eventually, if you put a, a lotus leaf onto the water for long enough, the wax will start to break down. But this Salvinia leaf doesn't do that. So it has this actively, it's actively trapping this layer of air around it. So they really want to kind of put this onto the sides of boats. <laughs> can they can they produce this structure and print it onto the side of boats so that the boat has a constantly, a constant layer of air around it? And therefore the boat itself never actually touches the water it's moving in a cushion of air and what would that rather do than for the friction? it would reduce it significantly now they haven't gotten to the point at which ah. they've done the numbers um and it's still very much i would say at the research end of the of the r&d scale but if you could have a boat that has to push its way through the air which is a much it's much easier to do than to push through water you could potentially have boats that use far less fuel in order to travel so i thought that was really really cool and i'm i'm definitely going to keep an eye on that yeah yeah that's really neat and there is there's so much about transportation in your book um so it just seems like making things go has a lot to do with surfaces um, yeah one of the areas that I found super interesting was your discussion of tires. So, what, oh yeah, <laughs> well, what is a tire? Yeah, so it's it seems like it's not just rubber. So, what is actually, uh, yeah, what is the engineered yeah. glory of the tire? Yeah, <laughs> I could talk about this all day, Carolyn. <laughs> yeah, tires are really cool. Like you said, they're not just rubber. And um, if you look at a, a normal car tire, what you're actually looking at is a many layer thick sandwich of different materials. So you'll have some steel uh, mesh, you'll have some steel rings, you will have lots of rubber layer by layer by layer. You get this really dense sandwich structure that is both 
flexible, which is what we need it to be, as, as we'll discuss, but also really robust and it can keep its shape and hold its shape as it's moving along the road. Um, and the thing about, I think, really, the genius about tyres is is the rubber itself. Mm-hmm. You know, the engineering of all the structures around it are, are really important, but the rubber is what makes it possible. So, most tires today are not made with natural rubber. So natural rubber is is a compound that is produced by a certain group of plants and trees. And as it's allowed to harden, it you get that rubbery material that you know and love. Um, but the difficulty with natural rubber is that when it heats up again, it gets soft again. It was the discovery or the invention of a process called vulcanization that turned natural rubber into a material that could be much more robust and could retain its strength but also its flexibility at increased temperatures Um, and that was really when we started to produce tires that was it was really the invention of of that process Uh, basically you're just adding lots of sulfur Mm. and forming cross links in the rubber in order to do that um so yeah it within about i think it's about 30 or 40 years of the invention of vulcanization that process um you had cars with rubber tires Mm. right so it really really kick-started the tire revolution um so today's tires mostly use Um, a blend of synthetic polymers and they are almost always made entirely from fossil fuels and other additives. So tyres as we know them now are not at all good for the environment. There are beginnings to, things are starting to change in that regard. There are tyre manufacturers looking for alternative sources of of rubber-like compound but right now they're mostly made from fossil fuels. The resulting material, though, is what's super cool. Um, Rubber is what's called a viscoelastic material. And what that means is that its behaviour sits between two other types of behaviours. So it sits between an elastic solid, so you might think of that like a spring, and a very sticky or viscous fluid. So rubber sits right in between those two regimes. Mm -hmm. So if it was like a spring, when you if you take a spring, right, and you and you squeeze that spring, what happens is the spring compresses. And when you release that force, the spring will bounce back pretty much immediately to its original shape. If you try to squeeze a sticky liquid, if you try to compress a, a you know a carton of honey or something, what you'll realize is that You can do it to a degree, but it takes an awful lot of energy. And it's because the molecules within that sticky liquid are interacting with one another. So they're kind of moving around one another and they're experiencing a lot of internal friction. So you trying to compress that, you lose a lot of energy to to those internal interactions. And you also will find that things happen more slowly. So it won't bounce back instantly. It won't respond instantly. There's a time delay between you applying a squeezing force to a sticky liquid and the sticky liquid liquid actually paying attention to you. <laughs> so that's tires sit somewhere in the middle of those two things. Um, and what that really means is that rubber will deform and return to its original shape like a spring. Mm-hmm. But it will do it with a bit of a time delay and a bit of energy loss, like a sticky fluid. And that means that as a tyre rolls across the ground, 
And again, like everything, every other surface, ro- roads and racetracks are very rough. Even Formula One racetracks are very rough. The tyre can flow and um, kind of stretch and bend and get into that roughness. It slips and it flows over all of those bumps. But because it's viscoelastic, it kind of lingers in place ever so slightly. And that's enough to give it grip. It's enough to give it friction. That concept is called indentation. So that idea of the road kind of pushing itself into the rubber or the rubber flowing into the road. That's the main way that our tires, any tires really, uh, whether they're race tires or or bike tires, that's the main way they get their grip. This flow and flexing and slight energy loss that happens because rubber is is viscoelastic. Um, and then the everything everything else inside the tire, like the rings and the and the steel uh, meshes, they're there to give it rigidity and to make the tires last for longer. Right. So, what actually sets a race tire apart from regular road tires? There's a few different things. They're actually quite similarly made, which mm-hmm. I didn't really realize. Um, but the main thing is that Formula One tires, especially the smooth ones, you know, you see the, the really flat, smooth ones. In normal life, we don't see tires like that because our tires have a tire tread. They have a mm-hmm. tread pattern etched into them. But most on a dry day, Formula One tires are smooth and flat and enormous. <laughs> so the size is part of it. It's always about increasing the contact area as much as possible. But that smooth rubber also allows Formula One tires to do something really special. <laughs> they can actually tap into um, a form of molecular adhesion, which is quite similar to what the gecko uses to climb a wall. So these Formula One tires can get into such intimate contact with the road that they can use Van der Waals interaction. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. Yeah, so this rubber is soft. So Formula One rubber is soft. The tires have to be kept within a specific temperature range in order to be able to tap into this. The presence of any water interrupts it immediately. So they can really only tap into this, this extra type of molecular adhesion when the conditions are perfect, when the track is dry and clear and their tires are in the exact right temperature range so that they can flow and flex as they're supposed to. The process, though, does cause the tires to degrade mm-hmm. because each time it moves, it's it's losing tiny bits of rubber. You know, it is really the, the rubber genuinely is sticking onto the road. It's adhering to the road. So that's why you'll see tire marks on a racetrack and you'll hear people talking about, you know, rubbering in the track. That's because they're losing some of the rubber from those tires. So that is why Formula One tires don't last very long because they are literally being ripped apart by tapping into this form of adhesion. Yeah. One other thing I found really cool from that chapter was just how much water treads get out of the way. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about treads? Yeah, absolutely. So what the treads real kind of genius is, is in its ability to to get water out of the way, right? We want the rubber to be touching the road. That's where we get the best possible grip. So in order to do that, tread patterns have been specifically designed. So you've got this combination of, of grooves and slits and kind of raised ribs and blocks and all of these really specific features. They've all been designed to suck water up from the road and push it out to the sides of the tires. 
So water is lifted up by these ribs and these grooves and it is pushed out to the outside of the road so that you can make as good a contact with the water with the road, excuse me, as possible. Um, and, you know, Formula One cars do sometimes have to race in the wet. So they also have treaded tyres um, for some races. And one stat that I found was that, um, I think it was the 2020 uh, Pirelli tyres from Formula One, they could push 65 litres of water per second. They could disperse that <laughs> when the car is travelling, you know, on a straight, so at full speed. Now, our road tyres can't do it that effectively, but they are pretty good at, at sucking water out of the way and allowing your car to get as close to dry contact with the road as possible. Mm, yeah, that set is very impressive. Amazing. Eh? Like, And you can see it, right? If you watch a Formula One race that's happening in wet conditions, you see a dry line that is left by the tyres. Oh. It really is drier than the rest of the track. Yeah, that's some impressive engineering. Really is. Um, so I want to move to ice because that chapter sure. really surprised me. Um, <laughs> so so let's start with just why is ice slippery? And I love how you say that this is like a trick question because it's, yeah, it's not actually that simple. Not at all. And again, this is one of these topics that when I had the idea for this book, there were some topics I thought were kind of done. You know, I was like, this is going to be a really neat, lovely story that I can just capture really quickly. And then I can move on to some odd mystery. <laughs> and I thought ice was going to be just like really straightforward. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. Um, ice is slippery for lots of different reasons. Um, one thing I found, and perhaps a lot of your listeners already know this, is that ice isn't always slippery. Ice's slipperiness is dependent on its temperature. So if you get ice that is cold enough, um, if you get ice that's kind of at minus 100 degrees C, for example, that ice is actually a very high friction surface. So even if you had a fantastic pair of skates, you could not skate easily on ice that is at 100, minus 100 degrees Celsius. It's a very, very, very high friction surface. It's much more like uh, as if it's like a rough glass mm. than a slippery surface. But what's interesting is as the temperature of ice increases, the friction that exists between a steel blade or in the case of the experiment that I'm kind of alluding to, it was a steel ball being dragged along ice at different temperatures. Um, the coefficient of friction between the steel and the ice decreases as the temperature increases. So a minus 100 degrees C, friction is very high. As the temperature increases and gets closer to zero degrees C, friction decreases pretty steadily and it reaches its lowest value at minus seven degrees C. Now, this temperature is interesting because it's much more like a realistic temperature that most of us humans would interact with in the depths of winter. You know, we're not going to see temperatures of minus 100 degrees C, but we're very likely to see temperatures in the kind of minus 15 to zero degrees C range. Mm -hmm. And right down at that range, ice is incredibly slippery. 
And the reason it is, is because there is something called pre-melting that happens. Now, I spoke to one of the scientists involved in this study, and he absolutely refused to allow me to call the slippery layer on the surface of ice water. Okay. <laughs> he was like, no, no, it's not water. It's not water. It's, it can't be water because it's below freezing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you can call it a, a quasi-liquid, I guess. So it's like, okay, well, we'll go with that. <laughs> but in their study, what they realized, so that they did these experiments, but they also did some supporting um, theoretical studies as well, modeling studies. Studies. And the thing about ice is that at low temperatures, when ice is solid, really, really solid, each water molecule is chemically bonded to four neighbors, right? So you get this lovely tight bond between four neighbors. Molecules on the surface of ice are often only bonded to three other molecules just because what's above them is air, mm -hmm. right? So it's a surface, it's not as tightly bound, it's not in the bulk of the ice. And that's okay. So those, the ice, the water molecules that are bonded with three neighbors, they have a bit more wiggle room, right? So they can kind of wiggle around a bit. They can't move very much, but they can wiggle a little bit. So they have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more slipperiness. But what these scientists, and two of them are actually brothers, um, Misha and Daniel Bonn are their names. Uh, one's a chemist and one's a physicist. So that was interesting too. <laughs> um, yeah. But they, uh, what they found is that at around minus seven degrees C, most of the molecules on the surface of water are not bonded to three neighbours. They're actually only bonded to two neighbours. And the difference between those triply bonded and doubly bonded molecules is enormous mm -hmm. because those doubly bonded molecules can roll around the surface. Like they're much more like ball bearings than a bonded molecule. They're literally rolling around the surface. And that reduces the friction. That makes the friction lower because you have this these, these ice molecules that have a bit more energy, they can move around. So at minus 100 degrees C, you've got ice that is basically fully bonded. All the molecules are really tightly bonded. You get a very hard, very high friction surface. As the temperature increases, some of those molecules, especially on the surface, start to loosen their bonds. So friction decreases gradually. And by the time you get to minus seven degrees C, the majority of the molecules on the surface of the ice are mobile. So they're much closer to a liquid than they are a solid. And that's what makes it really slippery. At that temperature too, the rest of the ice is still very solid. So the bulk of the ice is still really mm -hmm. solid. It's just that top layer that is ultra slippery. That's also the temperature, minus seven degrees C. That's also the temperature of speed skating rinks used in the Olympic Games. So it's not a coincidence. Right. That they really is the, what the best hardest. Ice is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The hardest, most slippery ice is ice at minus seven degrees C. That's a great example of how a surface interaction is so, so important to, I don't know, something in our world, something that people interact with skating. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed your discussion of curling. <laughs> so I guess, you know, what to your material scientists or physicist mind is so cool about um, about the sport? How did you get sucked into it? And what did you learn about how the stone curls? 
So you're getting a real sense of like how obsessed I get about random things that I did not know anything about <laughs> before I started researching them. But like, I think probably like lots of people, I every time the Winter Olympic Games are on TV, I end up somehow watching curling. I've never, I have no background in curling. None of my family play. I don't have any cultural relationship to it. Um, but I just always found it really fascinating. You know, this idea that you have this stone and it's kind of spinning as it moves down the ice. And then you've got these people and they're sweeping brooms and I just I've always found it really fascinating and and as I started to look into the science it became even more interesting to me (laughs) so the first thing is the stones themselves they are all all of the stones that we see at the Olympic Games come from the same island off the coast of Scotland Mm -hmm. which I find really wonderful Mm -hmm. so it's a particular it's a two granites uh, two types of granite that are used together they are very very hard um, they are very water repellent, so they they do a really good job of keeping water out of the stone. Once water starts to get into stone and starts to freeze and crack, rocks can fall apart. Mm-hmm. These particular granites are are very good at, at keeping water out, so that that tends to be why they're used. So I found that kind of process really interesting. You have this weird geological, you know, odd oddity off the coast of Scotland that created these ultra hard granites. And somehow they have that they're now used in a massive globally played (laughs) Olympic winter sport. Um, But the stones themselves are interesting for that reason. But really, the ice is what I think is particularly cool. if any of you have ever watched curling, you might notice that the ice looks different from, say, a speed skating rink. Speed skating rinks tend to be very smooth, very hard ice. Whereas if you look at a curling rink, it looks extremely white and quite matte. And that's because the ice on a curling rink is actually deliberately textured. Mm. So it's not smooth. It's deliberately bumpy. So they, they make perfectly smooth ice in the way they make all of the ice rinks at the Olympic Games. And then someone walks along the length of the curling ice with something that looks a little bit like a shower head <laughs> and they they shake it from side to side um, with a with a big tank of water on their back. And so they spray the the smooth ice with this layer of of water that instantly freezes and creates these bumps called pebbles. They're known as pebbles in curling. And the art of making curling ice it really is something, you know, they've tried to d- design machines that can spray the water and apparently it has been just no good. They just don't get good quality curling ice. So it really is done manually by by ice makers, by expert ice makers. And some combination of this bumpy ice and the rough underside of these heavy, dense stones is what defines the game of curling. Because if you have smooth ice and you throw a curling stone down the ice in the same manner, so you slide it and you set it rotating as you release it, that curling stone will not curl. It will take a mostly straight path. So the ice is really important to defining the path that the stone takes, which is what gives the the sport its name, Mm -hmm. right? It It gives it this curving, sweeping path. And I loved that. I thought, how interesting. That's actually a surface interaction. That's really, really cool. What I wasn't expecting to find was that there is like a massive amount of debate (laughs) in the scientific world around curling. There are two, I'd say, opposing theories um, around 
what it is that makes a curling stone curl the way that it does. And it really comes down to that interaction between the ice and the stone. So just to give you a little experiment to do when you have some time, um, take an empty bottle, like a beer bottle or a glass bottles tend to work best because they've got some weight to them and just slide it forward onto the countertop. Just slide on a table, just slide it forward. Probably the bottle will move in a straight line. Now, if you um, set the, the the bottle sliding as you twist it, so you kind of set it curling effectively, like a like a curler will do with a curling stone. So you set it spinning. If you rotate the bottle to the right, so you rotate it clockwise, the path it will take will curl to the left, hmm. and vice versa. Right. So if you rotate it left anti-clockwise, the bottle will curl to the right. Now, in terms of like friction, that kind of makes an instinctive sense. It's it's about how the bottle moves. The bottle leans forward as you release it. It's kind of immediately slowing down. Friction's higher on the front edge than the back edge. It actually makes a lot of physical sense. There's lots of equations to explain how this works. It's called asymmetric friction. The weird thing is that with a curling stone, that does not happen. Mm. (laughs) So when you release a curling stone, it will curl in the same direction in which it spins. So something else is going on. It's not just asymmetric friction. There's something else going on. And the two theories are kind of, one is to do with, well, one suggests that the stone pivots as it's sliding along the ice and it kind of hits these bumps, the rough surface of the stone, stone hits these pebbles and it kind of pivots around them. And there's a beautiful equation, which I actually include in the book, um, <laughs> that talks about this pivot slide um, idea. That's probably the leading theory. Mm. I would argue that that is the leading theory at the moment because the equation also reproduces a lot of what we see in the real world of curling. But there's these kind of great pretenders, <laughs> this oppositional side, um, who think that actually what's happening is that as the stone slides along the ice, it's scratching the ice. So the rough stone is actually creating a path. It's creating a, a line of scratches that the the back of the stone follows Mm. and this is they call scratch guiding now the two sides both think that the other side is completely wrong and the pivot slide team are absolutely 100% do not agree with anything that the scratch guiding uh, people say there has been some interesting research, follow-up research from other research groups looking at the scratch guiding theory, and they've put a bit more heft, a bit more maths behind it, and some better experiments, really. So that theory really hasn't gone away in its entirety. Um, but definitely the, the pivot slide theory is the one that's leading in terms of in terms of reproducing what we see in the real world. But I just loved this concept <laughs> of like a sport that is kind of a sport that we we don't joke about, but, you know, people are always like, what is going on? What's with the sweeping? Oh, actually, the sweeping, I should say. The sweeping, <laughs> its job is to is to straighten out the curl. Mm. So if the stone is curling too much, they sweep in front of it. They melt a little bit of the ice. That creates a, lubricate, a lubricated path for the stone to follow. So that's what the sweeping does. Um, but, I, yeah, <laughs> I love this idea that you have this slightly odd sport that has been played for, like, 500 years and we still don't really know the science of it. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, the, yeah, it sounds like the debate has not been settled yet. Definitely not. I'm curious if there was something you learned um, in reporting this book that really surprised you. 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of little ones, I guess. And we've kind of talked about mm-hmm. some of them too, you know, with curling and, and geckos and things. But one, and this might sound very, very niche, <laughs> but one idea that I had coming into the book that was completely dispelled was that we don't understand what friction is on the nanoscale. Mm-hmm. This is an idea I had. I was like, no, no, we don't really get it. We don't really understand where it comes from or, you know, what's causing it or what's happening at the scale of atoms when you just have atomically smooth surfaces moving along one another. We don't understand any of that. And that's completely not true at all. Um which is, a, which is a wonderful thing. As a scientist, you, you're looking to be proven wrong. Mm. <laughs> so um, that was a wonderful thing to realise that I had completely the wrong idea about that. And I ended up speaking to some remarkable scientists who are looking at precisely that question. You know, where, what are the fundamental um, roots of friction? Where does friction actually come from? And it was a very difficult topic to delve into and and I kind of wish I had a little bit more space to do that really to again to do it justice but I loved being wrong in that regard because it led to a much more interesting story um and the outcome of it really was that instead of me thinking we don't understand friction at the nanoscale uh, what I realized the problem is is that we are we understand friction extremely well at the macro scale you know at the scale of humans mm. etc We've been manipulating it and designing systems around it for, like we said, millennia, right? We understand friction really, really well. We are, we have a growing understanding of friction at the nanoscale. We're starting to answer some of the really fundamental questions about where friction comes from and what friction looks like down there versus up here in the macro scale. But what we lack is a bridge between those two regimes. So we don't have a way to take what we know about friction at the nanoscale and use that to design better systems on the macro scale. And this is pretty unusual in the worlds of material science. Usually when we understand the fundamentals like of a, of a particular property on the nanoscale, like maybe density or something, once we understand that, we can use that to design materials differently. Once we understand what's happening on the atomic scale, we can use that information to change and design and build new systems on the macro scale we haven't done that in friction friction is still incredibly complicated Mm -hmm. it's still a really difficult thing to to fully capture and fully understand you know if we had a way where take we could take our understanding at the nanoscale we could take everything we know about a pair of materials right so if you think about say we talked about skates right steel on ice or rubber on asphalt or you know copper on wood any of those pairs of materials when we talk about friction we're always talking about something called the coefficient of friction and this is a number that we assign that applies to these two materials so the coefficient of friction of copper on wood has a specific number. We can't predict that in advance. Even if we know everything about copper and we know everything about the wooden surface, we cannot predict what that coefficient of friction will be. It's always measured experimentally because we have this gap in our knowledge. So if we could get to a point where we you know, could predict things like how high the friction is between two specific materials. We could design systems that could use fewer lubricants, for example, you know, potentially. And lubricants are usually, although they're great for reducing energy 
use, you know, they they help to make things move with less resistance. They themselves are often produced using fossil fuels. So they themselves can be a very, you know, unsustainable material, but we have no choice but to use them. Mm. If we could get to a point where we could change that, where we could really understand surfaces and how friction interacts between surfaces, maybe we could do away with lubricants in some instances. So I kind of, I loved that I was completely wrong on one, in one aspect, but then came to a much, I think, more interesting and much more complete picture of friction at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's rather satisfying. And it sounds like, it sounds like friction seemed rather mysterious to you before. Mm. For sure. And I mean, I even my dad, my dad is um, a, a toolmaker and engineer by by trade and training. And uh, when I said to him, oh, I'm going to write this book about friction, he's like, you're crazy, Laurie. <laughs> this is, why are you writing? You, and you're going to talk about aerodynamics and hydro, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? This is the hardest questions you could ask. <laughs> um, and it has been the case. It has been really challenging. Um, and I, uh, for sure, it's not a complete picture in that sense, but it is a much more complete picture from from my viewpoint. And and I hope that readers kind of who've come into it thinking that it's one thing and coming out and come out of it with with a much more nuanced idea of, of what friction and what surface science really is. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Laurie. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Laurie and her book, Sticky, we've linked to her website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Our podcasting crew is made up of volunteers, so you can support us and the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 